Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, David Shearer, VP of Marketing at Elevate, on designing a brand strategy that scales within a startup environment. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, this is Paul, and today I have David with me. Hi, David. Hello. So, tell us, who are you? My name is David Shearer, and uh, I am the VP of Marketing for Elevate here in the UK. So, what is Elevate? Yeah, so Elevate helps retailers and their suppliers execute trade-funded activity online. Uh, The company was founded by a guy called Scott Weaver's Wright. He was the creator of kiddiecare.com, which he sold to Morrison's in 2011. Scott's now the chairman of Elevate and has brought with him Simon Harrow, one of his senior team from Kitty Care, to take the reins as the CEO of the company. Uh, back in 2014, Scott saw that more consumer retail transactions were moving online, but there wasn't really a mechanism or a platform for retailers and suppliers to secure the trade-funded revenue in digital spaces. That was a big gap, and it's a pretty significant part of the revenue in physical retail stores. So Elevate was conceived towards the end of 2014 and launched in March of 2015 to help solve the problem of trade-funded activity online. But tell us, how did you end up there? Because you've been an agency guy, an advertising person for a very long time. So tell us a little bit about that background and how you ended up in a startup. The reason I got into agencies or into marketing and advertising was because I love telling stories and helping people see the benefit of things. There is a communication gap. Very often, the engineering mind you sometimes hear it say, if we build an incredible product, they will come. And some of the best startups and the most incredible, brilliant engineering has never made the distance because they weren't able to communicate it in ways that regular people could understand. In agencies, you get to tell those stories every day and be creative and inventive with solving business problems. But the evolution of agency life has shifted particularly aggressively over the last, I would say, eight years, eight to ten years, uh, since the digital age has come to a little more maturity. While it's a great thing because the number of channels available to you have expanded exponentially, it's also brought a level of complexity and it's brought some democracy to how ideas are put into market and how they're expressed. And increasingly in the agency world, particularly as you get further up the food chain, the the last two jobs I had in agencies before going to the corporate world were executive creative directors with office responsibilities. You spend a lot of time in meetings, a lot of time pitching ideas but don't see the light of day. And you think, well, I like telling stories and helping people see the value of products, and I'm not doing that anymore. I'm spending all my time trying to convince people of the value of what we're presenting to them. Really, in order to be able to change stories and use the tools that are available uh, in the digital world more aggressively and effectively, you have to be a little closer to the source. In the days of Mad Men, when Don Draper was going out there and selling big ideas to clients, they wanted to do a TV commercial. They had to go through an ad agency because the price of entry was half a million pounds or dollars or whatever. Today, anyone with a MacBook, a copy of Final Cut or Premiere Pro and a, and a GoPro can make HD, almost broadcast quality film off the bat. So because the tools are available, 
people believe that they know how to use them effectively. Uh, as a broadcaster yourself, you'll know that having the kit is not the whole nine yards. Uh, you've got to know how to use it very well. So I started looking beyond agencies, beyond that environment to get closer to the source. And as it would happen, serendipity came my way and I heard of an opportunity in this funky startup called Box with a very charismatic and entertaining CEO in Aaron Levy. Levy, yeah. Uh, yeah, so his, he has a personal passion for magic and he loves getting up on stage and doing magic tricks. And I think, I think that's, if you look at his LinkedIn profile, his chief magician at Box is his, his profile, but met first with his chief marketing officer, a lady called Jen Grant, who is a brilliant woman. And then with Aaron and had an accord with Aaron around what he was trying to achieve. And this is a way that I can take the skills that I've learned in the digital and marketing world and apply them to real products in fast scaling environments that are changing the shape of modern business and digital communication. Let me ask the Don Draper of Aaron Levy that you are. Uh, <laughs> I really like what you said. People believe, assume, since all the tools are available, they can do the kind of work you, Don Draper, sorry, David, does. Then the other thing that we hear a lot is that everything is media and everyone is media. Is that relevant or is that just something you put on the slide to make people happy? First of all, I'm not sure that I would quite put myself in the category of Don Draper. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's a pretty heroic looking guy to most people. I'm not sure I would cast myself there, but no, I think Having the tools doesn't make you an expert. You can own a, a lathe or a spinning wheel or, you know, a guitar or whatever. It doesn't make you a master potter, a master carpenter, a master musician. There is a gap there between perception and reality because I can use it doesn't mean I know how to get the value out of it. Having said that, the nature of what digital allows us to do has changed how you build a brand and how you build a story, I think, because before, the reason you went to agencies a lot was because you, you needed the skill and the insight that they had, because you didn't have access to data. Now, because you have access to real-time data and a lot of it, if you're prepared to look at it and spend the time analyzing it, you can get way more of the answer than you used to be able to get because the tools allow it. That's not to say that there isn't value in those skills that agencies bring because they are significant and extremely valuable. But the price of entry or the ability to be able to get started if you've got access to the tools is much lower than it used to be. That kind of shift happens also within startups. You, you said earlier that just build in and they will come. And it's true that nowadays startups seem to be compared to a few years ago, more marketing driven. At Box, you started when the company was still kind of small and it became a large organization. And the risk and that's not only in startups is every company that grows is that it loses its roots. It loses its uh, identity. What is the kind of challenge that you've encountered yourself there? How did you overcome them? Is it something you also do at Elevate? I mean, that's a great question. It's one I've been asked quite a lot, actually, in, in the past, because people do wonder. I mean, when I joined, it was relatively small. There was a there was a period at Box where we were seeing about 50 people a week joining the company. Oh, wow. um, and over a period of about two years, it grew threefold in its staff. There was a point in its history where there were more people who had been with the company for less than a year than had been with the company for over a year. What I found was a good way to address that is to not believe that the brand lives in a department. People say that they have a marketing team, therefore it's their responsibility to own the brand and to shape it and grow it. And I absolutely believe that to be wrong. I think the brand is something that your entire team has to manifest 
and they have to live it and breathe it. And if they don't believe in the brand, then frankly, they shouldn't be at the company. Uh, you should be building a, it's not a cult, but a sense of unity in the spirit of the belief of what you're trying to achieve and the methods by which you're going to achieve that. At Box, one of the ways that we did that, obviously, it's a content management system, used that software to help scale the, what we were doing. So it wasn't my job. I didn't see it at least as my job to build the brand solo and go off and, you know, shape it that way. It was more, my job was to create the story clarity and to provide the language and then also to provide the tools with which to make it easy for people who weren't natural marketers or who weren't design savvy to go and represent that brand effectively and clearly. I'll give you an example. Everybody hates PowerPoint. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hates Everybody <laughs> hates it. Nobody likes putting PowerPoint decks together. And no marketer worth their salt actually likes dealing with PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever your preferred platform is. But if you've got a sales team that are going out and doing what, an average of between 8 and 12 calls a day, presenting maybe five in person, maybe three or four or maybe five times a day through a shared screen, and they've got, what, 10 slides a deck, then you've got a team of, let's say, 50, 100, or however many it is of people. You've suddenly got an awful lot of brand real estate there, and it's at a high touch point with direct contact with people who have interest in your business. So it's a very fairly a getting qualified audience. That's a massive amount of brand real estate. So one of the things I did was to create a full template system of assets and slides so that anybody in any part of the company can go out and represent that business. And they don't have to go to Google to do an image search to go find some badly cropped image that's in four states <laughs> that is a nasty bit of cliche. They've got assets that are on brand, tell the story well, are pre-approved, they're cut and paste, really easy to go out and consistently tell your story to everybody. And they're not wasting time doing things that they're not skilled in, like trying to design pages. Simple, but very effective in continuity for telling the story and how it binds the perception and the culture of the team. Yeah, you just mentioned a key word is culture, because I see many, of course, large businesses, but also some startups, you know, they define brand values, they write it down onto some paper, and then they put that posters in the office, and that's it. These are our cardinal points that we mm. should have. Your approach is more about culture. It's also, it's, it's right. which I agree with because for me, brand is more about the culture of the entire company. And if I understand well, the tools you provide with people are to empower them. So you trust yeah. the people. Here are all the tools at your disposal to carry the message further. Absolutely. So every Monday, I would spend an hour with people joining the company. It didn't matter what department, it didn't matter what country. The box culture was about making sure that everybody that joined the business spent a period of time at head office to spend it at the you know the core of the honeypot, as it were. So they would spend time learning the systems, learning the culture, feeling the vibe, understanding our processes. All of Box is, because we believed in a cloud-driven environment, SaaS-driven environment, so all of the systems that the company uses are in the cloud. Everything is in the cloud. That drives a certain cultural behavior. And I would do a presentation to everybody every week to say, this is what a brand is to us. This is why we value a brand. This is how to think about what the brand is and how it can be useful to you. And here's a set of assets that we've created to make it really easy for you to pick up and run with this on day one. We did that for 1,200 people in the company in a little over 12 months. 
you set the base. When people are going into presentations, they want to look good. They want to look polished. And they are very grateful, generally, for having the right assets. If they don't have those, they're going to make it up. So make it easy for people to be good brand guardians, good ambassadors for your company and your culture. And they usually will because it makes them look good. What you described is an onboarding process, which is obviously clear. Like when new people get in, how do you get them acquainted with the culture? Uh, and it's valid for a lot of startups. A lot of startups at scale have this issue. Do you also think that the brand must evolve as well as it grows? Have you seen that with Box? Or are you seeing that with Elevate now? Or have you seen that with other startups you might have been working with? Yeah, so typically when companies get started, they're pretty clear on what they sell and how they sell it. What they're not really clear on is why they sell it. And it's not to make a profit. That's an end result. That's a definition of whether or not it was perceived as valuable or that you're running the business well. So if you step away from the economics of it a minute and remember that you're selling to other people, people buy into other people and they buy into purpose and vision. So the company has to be clear on why they exist, what it is that they're trying to solve, what challenge they're trying to take on. If they know what that is, that forms the core DNA of your business, your company, your culture. That's why you exist. Then all the things that you do to prove that out are your product, are the features you build, are the way you sell it, etc., etc. They all pivot off of that core DNA of uh, what you believe and why you're doing this. And then as the company grows and it scales, as long as you're staying true to your values, you can change all the other pieces, but you don't change the brand and you don't change the identity because you're staying true to the mission that you've articulated. It's very similar, I think, to people because there's a version of you that you go take to your parents and how you behave with your parents. There's a version of you with your spouse. There's a version of you with your nephews and nieces. There's a version of you when you go out partying or you go to a bar or you go to a football match or whatever it's going to be. There are different facets of the brand of you, but the core DNA doesn't shift. It's just the variables, the bits that you show at any one time do. So you can change those and scale them up and scale them down as long as you don't try and be something you're not and deny your true DNA of why you're doing this and what you believe in. So meaning when you joined Elevate, you trusted and you were almost in love with the core of its DNA because if the DNA is wrong at the start, it's very hard to change it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I started as an advisor on the advisory board at Elevate and worked with Simon Harrow, the CEO, and was inspired by Simon. Simon is of the same milk, I believe, as Aaron Levy. There are founders and CEOs and people driving businesses that you can just feel that there is an energy about them and a sense of vision and clarity of purpose. Uh, and they really cut through. And Simon, I believe, is, is one of those guys. And he had a very clear vision for what kind of business he wanted to be building and shaping. And he also recognized the value of brands and the equity that they can generate. So we had in the cause fairly early on in our relationship. And the story that he told me about all of the senior people within Elevate are ex-retailers. They all have lived and worked in the retail business. And they were very clear on the gap that was there in that marketplace where all these incredible learnings and experiences in physical stores haven't translated into the digital world. Commercial directors 
are trying their best to figure out how to deal with this accelerated pace of digital adoption, but they don't have the tools with which to do that. They're bound in by legacy tools that were developed in the early 2000s before smartphones even existed. Between Simon and Scott and Ken Platt, who is one of the other senior members of the team, they have technology and they have experience to be able to solve that problem. That's a great story because you're solving real problems, not candy bars. Now, we're not selling another chocolate bar and making, you know, it's not like M&M's where you have to fabricate the uh, some of the story because it's not a tangible benefit in that sense. They're solving real problems for people every day that makes a whole experience for all stakeholders in that, whether it's retailers, suppliers, or customers, everybody gets a better deal. That's a great foundation for a storyteller and a brand builder to be able to start with, particularly when that leadership team believes in brands and believes in the power that they can deliver to the success of the organization. You just mentioned a term that is one I love, storyteller. And earlier on in our conversation, you used the term brand ambassador. Don't you think it's a bit of the same thing? Isn't a brand ambassador some type of storyteller. You, you mentioned that you were giving tools to empower the employees. So basically, you empower them to tell stories. Exactly. I think a brand ambassador is someone who has understood and believed in the story of the mission, the purpose, what you believe in, why that matters. They can authentically deliver that story to the customers. So you want every employee to be an ambassador. People can tell pretty quickly if someone's just, you know, faking it until they make it, as, as Christ goes. <laughs> Particularly when you get further up the ladder, people can cut through the bullshit pretty quickly. Uh, so if you've got people there who don't believe in what they're doing, they can smell it. The storytelling piece is really just a structure. I mean, man has not really changed as quickly as technology has. And the way we embrace and the way we remember products and people and anything is through story. We join the dots in a story arc. And we remember the facts when they're embedded in a story. So punching facts at your customers is not enough. You have to string them together to have meaning. And then the facts and the data points will have added value, which is why the story matters so much. When we talk about branding, a lot of people relate to the B2C, you know, something they see every day, products that touches the masses. What we're talking about B2B is talking with enterprise software, enterprise markets. Do you think that the dynamics of building a brand for enterprise is different than the one for building for the consumer market? If you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said yes. I'm increasingly thinking that the gap is getting smaller. It used to be that perceived wisdom was B2B needed to be facts, rationale, et cetera, et cetera. And consumer was all soft and emotional and people walked into the car garage because they saw the sexy sports car convertible on the forecourt and then they walk out with a nice and sensible family wagon. And I don't think that's true anymore. And I think the reason that's happened is that the digital age has brought the veil down so that everybody in their professional career is just as visible as they are in their personal career. If you have a CEO or a senior, anybody actually in any business, If they make a bad move, it's all over the world. It's very public very quickly. You can't hide from that stuff anymore. So people are living their career path very publicly. And Google did some research very recently where they interviewed B2B business leaders. It was a survey sample was over 3,000 senior people. And they came away realizing that the decisions that people make in business are more emotionally driven than decisions people make at home. And actually, it makes sense when you think about the impact that those decisions make. So 
at home, if I buy a mattress, say, if I buy a bad mattress, I might have spent a bit of money, but it's not a life-defining moment. If I go to McDonald's, it's not going to be a life-defining moment if I choose McDonald's over Burger King, let's say. If I make a call to buy something in my work life and I make a decision there, not only does that affect my reputation if it goes bad, not only does it affect my income and the kind of house I can live and the family that the life I can afford for my family, it carries with me if I make a bad call for the rest of my days. That's an extremely emotionally charged decision. So people, in my view, in the business space, they make decisions emotionally and then they rationalize them with the facts that we provide them. If we get the story right and we give them reason to believe and have confidence in us or any brand as a partner, because we keep our promises and we deliver, the facts that then support that gives them extra validation and extra security in the decision that they've already made. A lot of startups, when they scale, they become multinational, they have many cultures working in the office, but also they span across many countries in terms of customers. You have a very interesting background because you moved to the US and then back to the UK. So I want to hear a little bit about these differences. Are they like cultural differences to understanding a story or maybe cultural differences about how you sell a story? Yeah, I've only been back in the, the UK for five months after 10 years in America. And I'm obviously British born. I'm dual nationality now. They're different in a lot of ways. But I think the, the default difference is when you share new ideas and new thinking with people, in my experience at least, particularly in Silicon Valley, people come at it from the point of view of, I want to see if there's potential here. I want to see what the opportunity is. And if there are flaws in it, how can we fix those? How can we uh, overcome those? Because if the core of the idea is good, we can shave around the edges and figure it out. Let's find the seed and build on that. It's much more of a constructor mentality. Typically, what I found in the UK is that there's so many smart and capable people here who have so much potential to bring. But the starting point is very often, I need to interrogate this. I need to find the flaws. I need to find what it is that the other people are missing so that I'm that little bit smarter. So the disposition of entry is more defensive, if you like, into embracing technology and new ideas. Once you get somebody on board and you get them over the fence, then you can't stop them and they will just run. But the courtship up front is slower because they are more suspicious generally of what your intent is and where this is going. And they're usually trying to find where the issue is before they embrace. And because of that journey that you have to go through at the front end, which is a bit slower here, I think that has a ripple effect on the pace of change and evolution within the British market relative to the American market, where people in Silicon Valley will go further more quickly. And if it's not working, we'll course correct later. Whereas people here want it to be more perfect, more quickly, so that they can just run with it. While it's a subtle difference, I think the ripple effect that that creates has a profound impact on the speed of change and innovation in the UK and on our ability to be able to accelerate across Europe through the incredible talent pool that we have in EMEA. Was it hard for you to readapt? I still, I mean, I've only been here five months, but I still feel like a tourist in my own backyard. Uh, it's very <laughs> weird, uh, particularly as my kids are more American than they are English now. But there's nothing quite like a British pub and a British sense of humor. You can't get that anywhere else in the world. I'm glad to be back. On that, David, thank you so much for today. Thank, thank you very you. much. Take care. 